it's really an honor to introduce Jeff Lacker tonight. And everybody's really in for a treat. And for those who don't know Jeff, um, just a few bullet points on Jeff's bio. Um, Jeff was born in Lexington, Kentucky. He received his undergraduate degree from Franklin Marshall College, um, his PhD in economics from the University of Wisconsin. Jeff joined the Richmond Fed in 1989 as an economist in the research department. And he really worked his way up in a variety of positions over the years. And in 1999, Jeff became senior vice president and director of research at the bank. And he was in that position until August 2004, at which time he became the seventh president of the Richmond Fed. Um, in addition, Jeff has published a number of papers and articles in the areas of monetary, financial, and payment economics. He's presented that at a variety of universities and central banks around the world. And if you just kind of take it right there, that's pretty darn impressive. And I think a lot of us would love to have our resume made up of those points over the years. But I think when you look at those accomplishments, those are great, but there's a lot more to it that, with Jeff Larker than this, those points. And I've been a member, as I shared, of the, the Richmond Bank for five years now as a director. And during that time, we've had some you know, positive times in the economy. We've had some, um, some tumultuous times over the last couple of years. And with a lot of people, that's when they really shine. That's when they, you know, at the end of the day, make their mark. And what I've learned from Jeff over that period of time is Jeff has been both a teacher to all of us and he's also been a student. Um, from this teacher side, Jeff does a great job of conveying the most complex policy issues um, thoughts of what's happening in the Fed, programs that have been rolling out, at least for a while, it seemed as though every month, and he does it in a very concise, clear, and very understandable manner. And for those of us who have been involved with the Fed or what you read in the papers, things aren't very easy to understand. But Jeff has a, a knack of describing it in a wonderful way. Um, at the same time, as I said, Jeff has been a great, I think, student. Um, he'll be talking to legislative people out in the marketplace, as he probably has the past couple of days. He'll be talking to CFOs of some of the biggest corporations. And he'll be talking to the, guy, the student from UNC who's pumping gas down around the corner. And in each case, Jeff is very engaged. He is very thoughtful. He makes that person feel as though they are the most important person around. And to me, that is what makes Jeff Lacker very unique. Um, that's why through these five years, it's been a joy um, being a director at the Fed and working um, with Jeff. And I think you're all in for a treat tonight. You're going to hear some things of what's happening in the marketplace. and. The, the value to Jeff at the end of the day, and I hope you are going to have a, a Q&A period, is he wants to hear what you all have to say. He'll share his remarks and, and open up. Don't be shy. This is your, your time to ask questions. We do it at every board meeting, and, and we hope it becomes a real fruitful dialogue going back and forth. So let's give a nice warm welcome for Jeff Lacker. Thank you very much for that overly kind introduction, uh, Dana. Let me get myself organized here for a second. Uh, so uh, it really is a pleasure uh, to be with you here. Um, as it is true that I, I do uh, view the best, I was asked by uh, Dean Dean uh, what I liked about my job. And being a student, I think, sums it up best. Uh, that um, I uh, derive immense satisfaction, but also we at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond derive immense uh, value 
uh, from our face-to-face -face contact uh, with people all around, um, well, in the case of the Richmond Fed, our district, uh, which runs from Maryland down to South Carolina and out to West Virginia. Um, I want to thank uh, Dana and recognize him uh, and uh, James Speed uh, for their service uh, to their country, really, on your behalf um, in their roles on the boards uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of, of Richmond and at, and at our Charlotte branch. And as well, I'd like to recognize, there are too many to name, all of our Richmond board members and our Charlotte board members. Through their work, we learn every month uh, an immense amount of uh, granular, uh, qualitative, anecdotal information for which there is no substitute in the economic analysis that we need to do uh, to carry out our responsibilities. You can only learn so much from the statistics that we get in Washington uh, that summarize quantitatively what's going on. There's no substitute for getting a glimpse into the, the minds, the intentions, the expectations, the worries, concerns, hopes of people making economic decisions, the decisions that really determine uh, what those economic statistics are going to be when they come out a few months hence. So that's immensely valuable. I really appreciate their work. I think you should too. Please join me in giving a round of applause to those fine citizens that are helping us out here. My colleagues and I have been um, visiting the area here for the past uh, few days, and um, I've been impressed with uh, the knowledge um, the expertise, uh, the innovation uh, that this region has to offer uh, to the country uh, and the world, and the, the extent to which that really bodes well for the possibilities of growth going forward, both for this region and uh, for our country. However, I'm with you here tonight um, to discuss the nation's economic outlook, which, um, as you probably know, is fairly disappointing. As I will outline, the recovery has been sluggish, uh, and more sluggish than many expected. Although it is worth bearing in mind that the economy is recovering, albeit at a slow rate. That is part, is recovering. That was the good news that James referred to. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Actually, there are a couple of bright spots. I'll touch on them later. Um, but as usual, um, and uh, this is worth emphasizing uh, this month in particular, I think, uh, the views I, I'm going to express to you are, are, are my own and don't necessarily uh, reflect the views of other members of the Federal Open Market Committee. This is our convention to just speak our own mind when we're, we're speaking in public. So let me begin with some background. Uh, in uh, 2008 and the first half of 2009, we experienced the worst recession uh, in the post-war uh, U.S. Arab, since the Great Depression. Um, and uh, we gauge that by the typical measures of depth and breadth um, and uh, duration of the recession. Uh, to mention one uh, such measure, the unemployment rate more than doubled uh, from a rate of 4.4% in early 2007 uh, to 10.1% 10 10 in October of uh, 2009. The Business Cycle Dating Committee of the National Bureau of Economic uh, Research, um, yeah, Economics Dating Committee, uh, it's not as exciting as you might think. Um, the Business Cycle Dating Committee, this is the, the group of people who decide the, officially decide these things, declared that June of 2009 uh, marks the official end of the recession. That's when the contraction uh, ended. In the first uh, four quarters following the end of the recession, real gross domestic product, that's our broadest measure of economic activity, uh, rose by 3%, which is pretty sluggish in comparison to other similar periods uh, in the past, following, immediately following recessions. Now, when this recovery began, it wasn't obvious that it would be so sluggish. After all, we had monetary policy, and fiscal policy that were both highly stimulative and looked like they were going to continue to be highly stimulative based on measures like the, the level of the federal funds rate, which was exceptionally low, and the increase in the federal budget deficit at the time last year, which was uh, growing rapidly. Moreover, past recoveries after recession it tended to be more rapid after recoveries that were sharper. So the sharper the downturn, the more rapid the recovery. And this was, a, as I said, a pretty sharp 
uh, rec uh, recession. So why has growth been so sluggish in this recovery? Well, this is a difficult question to answer. So for clues, uh, to kind of give you the narrative, to point to where we, we might find an answer, I'm going to compare the first four quarters of this recovery, uh, and that runs from uh, the second quarter of 2009 through the second quarter of this year, 2010. Uh, the, the last, it's the last quarter for which we have data. I'm going to compare those four quarters to the first four quarters of recovery from the two other very severe recessions we've had in the post-war U.S. experience, uh, namely the, the recovery after the 1974-75 recession, which began in the first quarter of 75, and the recovery after the 1981-82 recession, which began, uh, the recovery began in the third quarter of 1982. So one reason for the sluggishness in, uh, that's apparent uh, it just becomes immediately obvious when you look at residential real estate and compare it to these past recoveries. Housing was significantly overbuilt uh, during the boom that lasted approximately 10 years from about 1995 to 2005. And as a result, there are a large number of vacant homes uh, that are reasonably good substitutes for new construction in a lot of areas of the country. So one recent estimate puts the number of vacant homes at 14 million nationwide, a huge number. And not all of these are on the market either. This overhang of unoccupied homes has put a damper on construction in many markets, and it's kept housing starts down around about a half a million units per year at an annual rate. This is far below the rate of one million to one and a half million that we would need just to keep up with population growth uh, in our country, the, the rate at which new households are, are, are growing, the number of households is increasing. Even though home prices have stabilized, um, and I think construction is likely to remain depressed for some time, uh, because it's, it's going to take a while for population growth and for growth in real incomes uh, to raise the demand for housing back up to a level where it, it aligns well with uh, the supply of housing. And I think this is likely to take a great deal of time. For example, population growth is just 1% per year uh, right about now. In the meantime, we have a decentralized process underway of separating households from homes and, and or mortgages for whom they are poor matches um, and finding them homes and mortgages or some other living arrangement, perhaps rental, uh, for which they are a better match. And that process is, is, is going to be long and arduous. Um, and we've had a setback just recently with um, what's happened with uh, these robo-signer mortgage documentation problems. As a result, residential investment has failed to make any positive contribution to growth in activity over the past year. And this is a sharp contrast with those other two severe recessions uh, where residential investment increased on an average an average rate of 40% in those recessions. So those recessions where there was a sharp fall in housing, of a, housing construction of about the magnitude we saw in this recession, but 40% return, 40% increase uh, in the year after the, the recession ended. Um, now, if, if that had happened, GDP growth would be 1.4 percentage points higher. And what I mean by that is that if we'd had the normal contribution, if housing had expanded 40%, um, real GDP growth would have been 4.3% instead of 3.0%. That's what that contribution uh, phrasing means. And as I said, given the legacy of overbuilding, um, I do not expect housing to contribute significantly to, to growth at all over the next couple of years. Investment in non-residential structures uh, things like offices, stores, warehouses, and the like, has also been an area of weakness for our economy. Over the last four quarters, investment in this category has fallen by 15% and has subtracted a half a percentage point from top-line uh, economic growth. That's just slightly worse than average, though. Uh, it's pretty typical for uh, commercial uh, real estate investment to lag in the business cycle because of the long gestation lag in that sector. And it's pretty typical for it to lag in re the rebound in overall economic activity as well. What has been unusual, in addition to housing, 
is the behavior of household spending. In a typical recovery, consumers see a brighter future ahead and are willing to ramp up spending ahead of anticipated gains in employment and incomes. But that hasn't happened this time. Instead, household spending has grown at just one and two-thirds percent uh, over those four quarters uh, since the recession ended. And it's added a modest, as a result, 1.2 percent uh, percentage points to real GDP growth over the last four quarters. In contrast, in each of the other two uh, severe recessions, house, after each of the other two severe recessions, household spending grew an average of 6.5% uh, in the first year of the expansion and added more than four percentage points uh, to growth. Uh, so you can see that growth would have been much larger, much higher, uh, if we'd had a stronger consumption uh, rebound in household spending. There are a couple of bright spots, brighter spots, I should say, in the outlook, however. Real business investment in equipment and software uh, has grown about 16% over the last year, and there are good reasons to expect that growth uh, to continue, per not perhaps at that uh, strong rate, but uh, for there to be growth continuing in this category. Looks as if technological innovations um, are providing uh, organizations with new opportunities to uh, streamline business processes, uh, reduce costs, uh, implement productivity enhancement um, in their business processes. Moreover, the cost of capital is awfully low by historical standards uh, for a large segment of uh, corporate America at least, and funds appear to be readily available for them uh, for at least creditworthy form firms, um, either in the banking sector or in the, on the open market. Um, profitability has rebounded for many firms as well. Uh, many of them uh, uh, for many of them, that's re been reflected in rising stock prices and um, uh, increasing cash hoards. And I think all these factors are likely to be encouragements to new business investment going forward. Investment hasn't been the only bright spot, though. Exports of goods and services have increased 14% over the last four quarters, adding a percentage point and a half to growth over that period. This is far better than the two previous uh, recoveries following severe recessions in which exports were flat or even declining over that period. So we have another area where we're getting an, an, an outsized contribution to growth. Economic growth in some of our trading partners has slowed a bit uh, since the earlier part of this year uh, and the latter part of last year, um, but we're still getting robust expansions in emerging market economies and that's going to continue to support uh, export demand uh, in the United States. What emerges then from comparing these three recoveries from the most severe recessions we've seen since World War II uh, is a mixed picture. Uh, exports and equipment and software investment are bright spots, uh, but home building has been flat and government spending growth has been subpar. And consumer spending has been expanding at a relatively restrained pace. The behavior of consumer spending is really critical to this recovery because it comprises two-thirds of our economic uh, activity nationwide. Households appear to be working hard right now to adjust their balance sheets by repaying debt, um, building up assets. The savings rate has risen from about 2% where it was before the crisis um, to about 6% now. But the saving rate has hovered about 6% ever since the recession ended. And that implies that household spending has been growing at the same rate as disposable income has been growing over that, that period. What this points to is that disposable income uh, is the issue for consumers. That seems to be the predominant factor restraining uh, consumer spending in this recovery. Now, there, there are two features of this recovery that have been widely cited as keeping labor markets from healing as rapidly as they typically do in, after a severe downturn. One is the idea of a labor market mismatch. That is that the skills uh, that are required by firms that have posted openings uh, on the market are different uh, to a greater degree than usual uh, from the skills of those who are looking for jobs in our economy, the unemployed. This mismatch hypothesis is difficult to verify directly. But it is consistent with the observation that aggregate job vacancy rates appear to have risen despite a stubbornly high unemployment rate. And it's also consistent with this broad feature 
of uh, economic growth over the last couple decades, that technological change has been shifting the demand for workers toward uh, higher skilled workers over time and away from lower skilled workers. As an aside, I note, I'll note that the Nobel Prize in economics this year uh, was granted for three economists who did their work on search theory, was it, which was exactly a breakthrough in formulating models uh, of uh, markets in which the process of, of finding a match between one side of the market and the other, a buyer and a seller, that's most appropriate for the two of them is costly and time consuming. And that's really our workhorse, our really starting point for understanding labor markets um, and their, the impediments to, um, uh, to their functioning. A second hypothesis um, about labor markets is that extended unemployment benefits are discouraging workers from accepting employment officers, offers. Indeed, some economists um, have estimated that the unemployment rate would be as much as one and a half percentage points lower uh, if we did not have the extended uh, unemployment benefits in place at this time. And this is a sizable difference. Uh, and if accurate, it would cast labor markets in a distinctly different light. Uh, than, we, than we'd otherwise view them. Many commentators have attributed the sluggishness of this recovery to a third factor, namely pervasive uncertainty regarding an array of government policies. Quantitative economic statistics alone are of little use in assessing this hypothesis uh, since it has to do with the expectations and motivations of economic decision makers, particularly firms, uh, but also to some extent consumers. Uh, but one part of my job, as I said, uh, is that I get to get out and talk to a wide range of people and gather first-hand accounts that go well beyond those economic statistics. Indeed, as I said, that's one of the main purposes of the trip down to the Triangle region here. Over the course of this year, I and my, my colleagues at the Richmond Fed, my colleagues actually around the system, um, have heard many forceful um, and indeed impassioned views uh, expressed about the economy. There be, appears to be a broad apprehension uh, that goes, it, it seems to go well beyond the normal grumbling about Washington, it's sort of become a feature of public life these days, or the usual sort of partisan political bickering that you hear. In some cases, this sentiment is attributable to specific regulatory actions. For example, in West Virginia, uh, for uh, the, the federal government's wholesale withdrawal of uh, previously issued coal mining, surface coal mining permits, uh, has led many businesses to suspend investment plans, and that's had a ripple effect throughout the, the West Virginia economy. And there are no doubt numerous other regulatory actions like that around the country that seem to have reduced production and employment. A part of this negative sentiment likely reflects the explosion of federal debt and the uncertainty about how sustainable fiscal policy is going to be restored. More broadly, people may have difficulty uh, now absorbing and adjusting to three separate 2,000-page pieces of federal legislation uh, that have been passed in the last two years alone. Um, I know I've been struggling with the one that pertains to our institution, so I can imagine what people are dealing with the other two are. Add to that continued uncertainty about tax rates for 2002, less than three months from, way, from now, business planners may be finding it more difficult than usual to, protect, to project for themselves the financial implications of prospective hiring or investment uh, commitments. So as I said, it's hard to estimate the magnitude of these effects um, or to disentangle them from general expectations of weak demand growth. Uh, but they're too broad and deep for me uh, to be able to dismiss as implausible the notion that they are having a significant uh, dampening effect on consumer and business spending of late. So where does the economy go from here? The consensus among professional forecasters is that growth is going to be about 2% on an annual rate over the second half of this year, third quarter and fourth quarter combined, and will slowly gain speed after that um, as, and, and will allow unemployment uh, to fall uh, over the course of next year. And this strikes me as a reasonable uh, scenario, and in fact, if you forced me to choose right now, um, I'd choose a forecast that, li that lies awfully close uh, to that path. 
This outlook is not without some risks. As always, growth could stagnate uh, even more, for example, if the, public, the, the, the policy uncertainty I alluded to uh, intensified. On the other hand, it's not inconceivable, for example, that uncertain, uncertainty could dissipate, uh, maybe more rapidly than anticipated. Uh, and that could unleash a surge in investment and hiring and cons that boosts consumer spending and growth as a result. But I, I think the most likely uh, outcome is for growth to continue in a modest pace we've been seeing now and gradually accelerate next year. So this gradual improvement for the economy as a whole should help North Carolina rebuild its economy and employment base. Relatively speaking, North Carolina's job losses have been uh, were more severe during the downturn than the rest of the nation, mainly due to the concentration in manufacturing, financial services, and construction. Uh, here in the Research Triangle region, unemployment surpassed the heights uh, reached at the end of the three prior recessions, and, and it remains elevated uh, at 7.5%. Uh, but because of the stabilizing presence of state government and educational institutions, as well as a uh, on a, a region that's fairly diverse and fairly innovative. Um, because of that, um, <clears throat> it looks like job loss in the Raleigh-Durham area uh, hasn't matched the national decline uh, in percentage terms and is much less than the state's decline as well. Uh, and moreover, the employment gains in this area, while, while weak, are, are proceeding at twice the, the pace uh, of the national rate. Uh, so it looks like the research triangle has weathered this recession better than most areas of the country, and it seems to be well positioned uh, to take advantage of whatever contribution to the region's growth the modest recovery in the U.S. economy is going to make. So I've barely touched on monetary policy so far, and I'm happy to correct that omission now. First things first, uh, inflation is now on target as far as I'm concerned. Over the last 12 months, uh, the price index for personal consumption expenditures uh, this is different from the CPI, but this is the best methodologically index, uh, has risen 1.5%. And that's exactly what I've been recommending for the last six years. We're also on track with the core price index, which uh, excludes the volatile food and energy sectors. And it's sending the same message, having risen at 1.4% over the last 12 months. I believe the Fed's best contribution to our nation's economic prosperity over time would be to keep the inflation rate stable at a rate close to the current 1.5%. But inflation's been lower for some time this year, with the overall inflation rate only being 7 tenths of a percent at an annual rate uh, so far this year, and that's too low for me. But I would point out that these inflation numbers often run hot or cold for several months at a time, and that's why economists like to focus on this 12-month uh, number, just to smooth through those month-to-month -month wiggles. And I'm not yet convinced that inflation is likely to remain undesirably low uh, in the months ahead. Moreover, the best measures we have of the public's inflation, uh, expectations regarding future inflation is not at such a low level. In fact, the latest survey from the University of Michigan puts the public's short-run inflation expectation at 2.2%. So I don't see a material risk of deflation right now. That is an outright decline in the price level. It's worth noting something. We've experienced inflation at the rate we're seeing right now before. Uh, and we've experienced it for an extended period. And we've done so without seeing a, a decline into a deflationary spiral. From January 1959 through December of 1965, the price index for personal consumption expenditures averaged 1.4%. It never rose above 1.9, and it never fell below 0.5. In fact, not only did this episode of about 1.5% inflation not lead to deflation, it was followed uh, by those old enough to remember those times, uh, will recall, by a gradual upward drift that led into the great inflation of the 1970s, in which inflation ultimately exceeded 10% um, for a spell. This disastrous unwinding of price stability after 1965 provides an important cautionary tale uh, for our current episode right now, I believe. It's now widely recognized that tilting monetary policy back then, as we did back then, towards trying to reduce unemployment gave policy a distinctly inflationary bias. 
with inflation reasonably close to any plausible definition of price stability right now, and all expectations measures pointing in the right direction, making unemployment a policy imperative poses clear risks to the credibility of our long-run inflation goals. In closing, I want to note that despite the widespread expectation uh, that near-term economic growth is likely to be weak by historical standards, I remain persuaded of the fundamental uh, economic prospects of our nation and that they look bright. If we can navigate the policy turbulence ahead in a way that restores credible fiscal policy balance and preserves the resilience and flexibility of our system, I think we're going to find and implement plenty of ways uh, to improve standards of living for generations to come as we have in the past. That concludes my prepared remarks and I'm, I'm very grateful for your attention. Thank you very much. And I'd be happy to take your questions. Yes, sir. Talk now about more. There's a lot of talk now about more what people call quantitative easing, buying, mm -hmm. the, the Fed buying a large amount of uh, government securities of different maturities. Mm -hmm. Numbers mentioned are 500 billion to a trillion, and I'm, I'm interested in your view of whether that's a good thing to do. But, but also, how how would you go about deciding whether that's a good thing to do? I mean, you know. I'm an economist, and, and we look at models, and so we look at what's happened in the past, if you change the federal funds rate, and scenarios of one funds rate or another. But there, there's really no models to, to guide you in, in, in doing this. So how, I'm interested in how you, how you come to your decision on whether that's a good thing or not. It's a really good question. Um, repeat the question. So the question has to do with quantitative easing. Um, there have been many news reports to the effect that the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, appears likely to consider quantitative easing at its next meeting. Uh, quantitative easing is new territory for us. We've done a bunch of it last year. We stopped buying assets, um, stopped adding to reserves, stopped adding to the money supply in March of this year. Um, and uh, that was on the basis of having completed a program we designed in March of 2009. In other words, we set an amount for how much we'd purchase back in March of 2009. It was a very large program, involved um, over a, a trillion and a quarter of mortgage-backed securities, some 300 uh, billion in treasury securities, and uh, in addition, some 100-plus-odd uh, billion of uh, agency debt. Um, so that was a very different circumstance. We're in a different circumstance now, recovery that's weak and with inflation that's, in my view, at an appropriate level, but some view as, as too low. Um, it's, it's difficult in normal times to gauge um, the effect of a change in the federal funds target rate, our usual policy variable on the economy, as you would know, uh, Professor. Um, and um, the uncertainty just gets compounded when you're in sort of uncharted waters the way we are now. Uh, some estimates I've seen base uh, their analysis on uh, get, um, estimates of, of the amount by which um, an asset purchase program would affect long-term yields. And here this goes to just the, the, the economics of how it has an effect by adding more more money to the banking system, we have to induce, they have to be induced to willingly hold that. And for that to happen, the rate of return on alternatives they have has to go down. And at the, at the most basic level, the, the immediate alternatives are things like three-month, six-month treasury bills, so those rates fall. But then there's a chain reaction as people substitute out of six months into one year, out of one year into two year, and so on, out the curve. And um, we've had... Uh, We've done some experiments with the quantitative easing we've had, in a sense, and we can gauge from the market reaction to the announcements we've made um, a, a rough estimate of um, the effect on the yield curve. Those are very rough. 
those announcements were contaminated to some extent by other things that we announced at the same time last March. And in addition, uh, if you take a window, an announcement window of maybe an hour or two, you get one answer. If you take a couple of days, you get a different answer. So uh, we really um, are, are facing a situation where the effects are a little more uncertain than usual. The other factor for me, uh, this wouldn't dissuade me necessarily from quantitative evening, but the other factor influencing my thinking about this is the notion that while I'm, I'm very confident that quantitative easing can have a strong and powerful effect on inflation and the price level, it's less clear that monetary policy uh, can um, ameliorate the problems and impediments uh, to the sluggish, that are leading to the sluggish growth rates we're seeing now. Uh, and that makes me, um, that would make me hesitate uh, before, um, uh, given the, that the inflation rate is at a level I view as appropriate, uh, before embarking on quantitative easing. Um, the meeting's a few weeks away, though. I'm going to wait until I see the briefing materials, hear from my colleagues, talk to my staff, uh, listen to my friends on the, the FOMC, uh, before I make up my mind. Let me go over there. I've got sort of a follow-up question, seeing as the follow economist question. Uh, asked a question about economists crunching numbers with models. Um, I think that um, what I'm interested in is, is your view on uh, the, your, friends, your friends in the Federal Reserve System. Are they viewing our current situation more as a um, maybe particularly bad um, usual business cycle recession, or is there a sense that more and more are seeing this as something different, uh, a balance sheet recession? I mean, what you just talked about there at the end was sort of my interpretation was pushing on a string. And if you've done all these things and uh, real final sales are still where they are, all these parts, it just seems like, I don't know, we're venturing the new territory. So the short question is, is, is this the same old, same old, or is this a different animal? Um, so I won't speak for my colleagues. Let them do that. Uh, you've got me here tonight. You're stuck with me. That's is all you're going to get. Um, so l let me make, make the following distinction. So it's, every business cycle looks different. Uh, you go through it, and there's some unique features of everyone. But I think um, a useful classification is be between business cycles that we caused and business cycles that we didn't cause. Um, in the 1970s, on occasion, we cranked up interest rates to bring inflation down because it was accelerating. Uh, and that uh, caused the housing market to tank, as I was describing before. Uh, so um, when inflation had fallen a good measure, we would ease up. Uh, and when we eased up, inflation would stop falling and uh, housing would take off again. Um, in contrast, um, there are some recessions that have been caused by uh, shocks to real economic variables. Um, so oil price shocks is a good example, um, or um, the tech bubble bursting, right? So we had a, a, a lot of investment in telecommunications equipment, and then all of a sudden we decided we'd built too much telecommunications infrastructure, kind of like the housing thing. So there's a lot of investment in something and then a, a sudden change in views about whether we'd gotten enough of it or not. It's essentially some sort of overshooting in investment. And in a recession like that, um, monetary policy is less powerful to raise growth rates. So in a recession like that, we should re reduce real interest rates because what the economy needs to have happen to adjust is for real interest rates to fall, to encourage people to shift activity from the future, where resources might be scarce again, to the present, where resources are abundant. And we've done that. But that is of only limited help in a recession where something else caused a maladjustment. So we're, we've got resources that have left the home construction industry and left a bunch of ancillary industries that are related. And we haven't yet absorbed them in the rest of the economy. We haven't yet found productive things for them to do. And that's the story of this recession. personal savings rate had been in the 7, 8, 9% range. Um, 
I've seen some of your statistics that they have seen their savings rate actually go to zero, mm -hmm. um, having bounced now up to 6%. In, in the Fed's mind, what is the right number? Part of the, the, the people not saving is, is spending as they may not think they have enough saved where in previous recessions it being 8% or 9% they had enough. So how does the Fed think about that, number one? Secondly, on, 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 on employment, um, if you look at now versus other times, you know, we, we have been here before, if you look at kind of 82, 3, you know, not, not high 9s, 10% is not uh, out of the ordinary. However, if you look at the median number of weeks unemployed, or if you substratify that by race or education, the numbers are huge. Does the Fed look at the one number, or does it get into minorities between 18 and 25, you know, with a high school education, where instead of 9% uh, in, in parts of North Carolina and other places, those numbers may be in the high 20s, low 30s. And how does, how does the Fed weigh the big number versus the subnumber? It's quite a question. <laughs> My compliments. Very good. Very good. Uh, so there isn't one right number for the saving rate. Um, first, the saving rate gets revised a lot. So every year and then every three years, there's, there are revisions to the, um, our, pro our income and consumption spending numbers going back many, many years. And often, they change the, the savings rate dramatically. And they've tended to mark them up. So they revise income up by more than they revise consumption up. And they've done that again. So now the trow, I think, is around 2% is the lowest it reaches. So the savings rate is, is a subtle thing. Uh, people spend based on their income now and their current wealth. Um, but a huge portion of what you ought to think of as, as a, a household's wealth is the present discounted value of their future labor income. And that's actually larger than financial assets in the household's portfolio, if you look at it that way. So what tends to dominate movements in the savings rate is how they feel about future consumption prospects. So when, uh, when they're feeling optimistic, the saving rate will go down uh, because they'll spend ahead of those income gains and vice versa uh, on the other side. Um, it's clear that consumers are rebuilding their balance sheet, as I said. Uh, they're paying off debt. Con consumer credit outstanding continues to decline, both because people are voluntarily putting income into that, but also because some lenders are writing off consumer debt uh, and reducing debt that way. Um, so it seems clear that a number of, uh, you know, uh, uh, many, many households are cutting back on, cons on spending just in order to, to get their balance sheet back together, in order to repair their financial balance sheet. Um, so that'll continue for some time till they get comfortable. For e each household, it might be a different place. And then it depends on, then sort of movements in the savings rate and consumption are going to depend on their job prospects. At a time where going into a recession, people start worrying about their, their job prospects and so cut back on consumption and you'll see a spike in the uh, savings rate. Savings rate, while it's good by itself, you know, a low savings rate actually indicates some confidence in, a, in an environment where income's growing. So that's what we look at there. Uh, that's kind of how, that's the framework we use to interpret the savings rate. Um, so the second question was about um, disaggregated uh, unemployment rates, so unemployment rates for particular demographic groups. Well, the answer is yes, we pour over those statistics as well as the aggregate number. Um, and uh, we do so, particularly the duration statistics and the, so the occupational composition, but also the, the education level, to get at this mismatch idea I talked about. Um, and it does seem as if unemployment seems concentrated in um, sort of lower skill groups. And that's consistent with the idea that the, the, um, uh, you know, the resources that were freed by the, cons by, by the downturn, that were released um, by the net contraction in employment, we're lower skilled workers, and you think construction is sort of a canonical case. Um, but we have, if you think about a lot of job postings you may be familiar with in your life, you know, there's a good chance they're, they're more skilled occupations. Um, you know, programmers, financial analysts, um, it, you know, even in the manufacturing sector, and, you know, in the high school education sector, in people, high school education, 
people with you know machine tool skills, um, equipment, heavy equipment operators, and the like. So there, uh, we look at that for evidence on just what it is going on. Is it just purely a, ma a lack of demand, or is there some supply issue going on as well? Whew, what a question. John, Professor Coleman, his old friend. Sure. Um, we seem to be in a jobless recovery, right? And, and as to my mind, that's probably the most important feature of the economy that's going to dominate the political landscape, especially come November. Now, why are we in a jobless recovery? Um, and the hard part in terms of answering that question is that we've been in a jobless recovery for this recession as well as the prior two recessions. What's different about the last three than all the other post-war recoveries that we've experienced where we didn't have that? That's a great question. We wrestle with that all the time, and it's, it's perplexing and it's distressing uh, just because we know that um, you know, so many individuals, so many families are suffering because of it uh, and are suffering for longer than they would have in the 74-75 recession or the 81-82 recession. So some clues um, that people have talked about, uh, one of them I didn't mention is uh, this notion of layoffs that... Um, uh, in those earlier recessions, um, uh, output didn't change much after the recession compared to before. Um, and this, so the evidence that's consistent with that is that a lot of workers returned to the job they lost in the recession. So you think about a steel plant, putting people out on layoff, and then they call them back nine months later when the economy picks up. Or construction company, autos, same way. But if you think about these last recessions, the pace of technological change definitely seems to have changed in, in both nature and, and quantitatively, you know, in this sort of period between the mid-70s and the, the mid-90s. Um, and so it could be that the pace at which skills are becoming obsolete has picked up. Um, I think there, the evidence in favor of that is just the widening of the skill gap. The premium for high-skilled versus lower-skilled workers has been widening for several decades now. That's consistent with the idea that technological change is biasing demand more rapidly away from some skill groups to others. So it could be just that the, when we hit a recession now, um, you know, it's, it's like dead trees in a forest. When do they fall down? They fall down in a storm. But it wasn't really the storm that caused them to fall down. They were going to fall down sometime anyway. So we've got technological change always going on in our economy. You know, every, even in a healthy job market, there's 4 million job separations a month and about 4 million hires a month. And on top of that, you get net job growth of maybe 300,000 if you're lucky. So that churn is always going on, and it accelerates in a recession as one plausible hypothesis. And so... Recessions are times of accelerated sectoral reallocation, reallocation of workers from a sector that was headed for some decline anyway, um, and then we're waiting for the next sector to come up. Now, the next sector to come along, that depends on the technological progress. That depends on the rate at which we invent new things to do that are innovative, that warrant some investment in hiring some new people, and that's this sort of as you know, John, from your background in growth theory, you know, and studying with, you know, the great Robert Lucas back in the 80s, that that's this really hard thing to get a handle on. I mean, it's, it's sort of an accident that it's kind of gone along at about the same pace it has for two centuries now. It, we should be surprised if it doesn't fluctuate up and down at times. Maybe this is a time of slower technological progress. Maybe, maybe things are, are going to pick up soon. It's, it's really hard to know. And this in part motivated this trip here because technological advance is just, I mean, it is what drives improvements in standard of living. It is what drives growth and expanding jobs over time. So um, it's hard. We don't know the answer. Um, this is how I think about it. These are what I think are the leading candidates. One more. You mentioned a couple of bright spots. One of them was uh, export growth mm -hmm. um, as a potential place that we could look to. Uh, we, just as you think about the international landscape uh, more broadly, um, what should we look to there in terms of what's important? You know, 
exports have grown some, but net exports are not quite as rosy. Um, but clearly, the, uh, that sector is very important for lots of large companies in the U.S. There's lots of issues right now in currency, you know, talk about currency war and so forth. Uh, what should we be expecting over the next several years in terms of international contribution to growth in the U.S.? Um, so the, 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 um, the bright spot in the export demand picture is clearly in emerging markets. And the story there um, is of countries that are importing technology that already exists they don't have to do the hard work that I described before of inventing new things and uh, adopting uh, new processes and, and finding applications for, uh, for um, technological inventions. Um, they can just import what we have and using the capital stock of Western, you know, of Western economies can raise the productivity of their workforce tremendously. And the only thing that limits them is uh, the, the other stuff they have to invest in in order to facilitate the placement of that capital in close proximity to their workers and the pace at which they're willing to let workers leave the traditional very low-income, low-productivity sectors and migrate to the higher-productivity cities um, and uh, the modern sector. Um, so that's the story of growth in China. It's the story of growth around Asia. It's the story of growth in Latin America. Um, and... Um, it looks like they have lots of ways to go. Um, hundreds of millions of people don't have access to Western capital, so they don't have access to the, um, you know, the jobs uh, that at which they'd be so pr much more productive than they are in their current occupations. And um, so, I it looks as if that, in principle, could go on forever, uh, for a long time, until they catch up with us. At which point, we're all on the frontier. All trying to all dependent on new inventions to move standards of living higher, so their growth is going to be rapid. They're going to be um, high. They're going to show us a high demand for capital goods, uh, which we we have still have a comparative advantage. Us, Germany, um, uh, being noteworthy uh, exporters of capital goods. Um, what could gum up that process are um, macroeconomic policy. Um, missteps, uh, like we saw during the Asian uh, financial crises in the 1990s, uh, just sort of macro policy mismanagement. Now, they, the world seems to have broadly learned from what we went through in the 90s, so I'm hopeful that we won't repeat those mistakes. Um, but the possibility for macroeconomic error that, that slows down those growth engines is always there. Well, thank you. You've been a, a tremendously well-educated and articulate audience. Um, and just what I expected and hoped for. Um, greatly appreciate you coming out tonight. I'm very sorry I couldn't talk to each one of you personally. Very grateful for the conversations I've had here uh, tonight uh, at the reception and at dinner um, and over the last couple of days and uh, look forward to a chance to be with you again. Thank you very much. Thank you.